welcome to City Breaks. City Breaks in lockdown, in fact. It's week nine, or possibly week ten, I'm losing track, of lockdown here in the UK. Although, in fact, big news tomorrow, Monday the 1st of June, we're going to loosen up a little bit and be able to go out and visit people we haven't been able to visit yet. So that's exciting. But research and travel are not any easier than they were. So the COVID plan continues. This is the fifth week. And if you've been with us from the start, you'll know that we've done some virtual visits. A look at some of the websites and YouTube videos and whatnot that can deepen your understanding of cities you've been thinking about visiting or perhaps let you reminisce about cities you've been to visit. So far, we've done a virtual visit to Florence and a virtual visit to Munich. Today, it's the turn of lovely St. Petersburg. But before I get on to that, I just wanted to mention again the other thing that I'm doing in lockdown, which is producing some episodes called City Break Ideas. And the reason for mentioning that is that I really need your ideas to help make that what I want it to be. I want the City Breaks Ideas podcast to be really just a source of inspiration. Ideas for places that, when travel loosens up again and we can all do a bit more of what we want, places that you'd like to visit then. You've probably got some ideas. Wouldn't it be nice to hear other people's ideas as well and just dream a little? So, your ideas. Could you send me one in, please? That would be great. The name of the city that you'd like to visit, or perhaps that you've already been to and would recommend other people visiting. And, this is the important bit, please, please, please also include something about why. doesn't have to be very long, but just an idea as to the reason. It can be highly cultural, if you like, or it can be much more down to earth. A couple of ideas. I think when I think about Paris, going there again, why would I like to do that? I might think, oh, what I'd really like to do is have une crêpe, a pancake, in the Quartier Latin, one of those little cafes with tables sitting out overlooking the cobbled streets. So yes, while I'm there, I might go to the Louvre or the Invalide, but it's the pancake that's drawing me back. It can be a vague idea. I quite often remember that Marseille in southern France is a city that I very much want to visit. And the reason for that is twofold. One, I've read the Marcel Pagnol books, La Gloire de Mon Père and Le Chateau de Ma Mère, about his childhood growing up in Provence at the very beginning of the 20th century. And I know that you can go out to visit the house where he grew up from Marseille. So I really fancy that idea. And also, I've got this romantic notion as I want to see the Chateau d'If, the island fortress where the Count of Monte Cristo was imprisoned. I've seen Gérard Depardieu in the film, and I believe that you can get a boat trip from Marseille out to the Chateau d'If, and one day I'm hoping to do that. So, reasons can be manifold, and I'm looking forward to hearing yours. So, the three ways to get in touch with us, I'll just run through them quickly, and then we'll get straight on to our virtual visit to St. Petersburg. Okay, so you can contact us via the website, citybreakspodcast.co.uk. Go on to that, find the blog, and you'll find an entry there marked City Break Ideas. If you click on it, there's a space for you to write a comment. Alternatively, you can email citybreaks at citybreakspodcast.co.uk. That's quite a handy way if you're going to send a photo, which would be lovely. Or you can contact us via Twitter using at City Breaks Cast, C-A-S-T, short for podcast. Right, to the main business, St. Petersburg. 
I have so enjoyed revisiting in inverted commas St. Petersburg over the last week, planning this episode. And I've picked out a selection of things to watch and look at and read, which would be a really good introduction to the city if you're trying to decide whether to go or not, and would also be a lovely way to reminisce, as I've been doing, if you've already been. I possibly ought to add that if that's the case, the result is likely to be that you'll end up wanting to go again. Okay, so I went onto YouTube to find some introductory videos, and the one I liked best was called St. Petersburg Vacation Travel Guide Expedia, a lovely little six-minute film which would make a great introduction to the city. It takes you on a tour and shows you lots of pictures of those glorious Baroque buildings iced in their lovely fondant colours set against the sunniest and bluest of skies. Yes, it is a little bit advertising mode, but it certainly makes you want to go. You see all the main buildings on the tour, looking their shiny best, and there's a helpful commentary just telling you what it is you're looking at. So, for example, the cameras go through Palace Square, they go along the Nevsky Prospect, the main street. You get views of some of those amazing churches like the Church on the Spilled Blood, for example, which is the very Russian-looking one with the, I think it's seven onion domes, all painted in the lovely jewelled colours. You get inside St Isaac's Cathedral, which is a feast for the eyes, and also you're taken up top for a view over the city from its balcony. They take you out of the city to the palaces, Peterhof and the Catherine Palace. If you're not going for all that long and you're going to have to choose what to see, this would be a really good way, I think, to just have a look and see what most catches your attention. And it's nice too because the commentary gives you little bits of history along the way. So, for example, when we look at the statue of Peter the Great, it reminds us how he founded the city. Out at his palace, Peterhof, it tells us that he built it in an attempt to rival Versailles. It tells you a few little facts about the amount of water in the Peterhof fountains. So you dip in and out of these places and really get lots of incentives to go and a little bit of information to store away and perhaps remember when you actually get there. And it ends with a really beautiful nighttime trip along the canals, one to really make you be going ooh and ah as you're watching it. Yep, definitely recommend that. I also found some drone videos on YouTube, picked out three, they're about three or four minutes long each, which I would recommend. So there's one called St. Petersburg Aerial Time Lab in which the drone glides over St. Petersburg at dusk and you get lots of shots of the river and the canals and some of the main buildings. There's no commentary, so I wouldn't recommend starting with that unless you already know the city quite well, but it's really good on atmospherics. And then a couple more drone videos, all of this on YouTube. There's one called Winter St. Petersburg, Russia. A similar journey, really, but full of Christmas card-worthy shots of the city looking its snowy best. And then the third drone video is one called The City of White Nights, St. Petersburg drone video. Shot at that time of year when the sun doesn't ever really disappear and even at midnight you've got those rather eerie navy skies. One of the things for which St. Petersburg is best known, so quite a good thing to catch on a video. And this one ends with a glorious firework display, which I think is part of the White Nights Festival. So then, leaving videos behind for a moment, The very best website I found, if you only look at one, I'd make it this one, is one called www.stpetersburg.com. St. Petersburg has got a hyphen between the two words. 
and it's absolutely chock full of really, really useful, informative and easy to access information and glorious photographs. Section perhaps I liked best is the one called the virtual tour, which turns out in fact not to be film material, it's text and photographs, but really, really useful. So it's got 25 sections on it. All the top sites have a section to themselves. So let's think Peter and Paul Fortress, Palace Square, the Mariinsky Opera, Nevsky Prospect, the big palaces, 25 in total. And for each one, you can click on it, which brings up the photograph in a much bigger format, which is great because the photos are really good. And then an informative text with further links in it. So it really is a site that you can browse, follow your nose a little bit, get lost in, I would say, really. Just as an example, I picked one of the 25 sections, the one on the statue of Peter the Great, and just going to mention some of the things that you get in the text on that. So it tells you that the statue was built by Catherine the Great, in tribute to her predecessor, Peter, that there's an inscription on it, in Latin and in Russian. So the Latin reads, Petro Primo Caterina Secunda, which means to Peter I from Catherine II. I don't know if you've already seen pictures of this statue, but if you have, I'm sure you can remember it. It's a very dramatic depiction, a pedestal made of one single piece of red granite, moulded to look like a cliff, and on the top of that, of course, Peter, on his horse, gallantly leading Russia forwards. He's looking out to sea. He's got that kind of, where can I conquer next, look in his eye. It tells you that legend in St. Petersburg says that while the bronze horseman, which is the name of the statue, stands then the city will always be safe. It tells you that during the Second World War, we'll come back to that in a minute, but you may know that Leningrad, as St. Petersburg was called then, suffered the most terrible siege, 900 days long, when nearly a million people starved to death. And during all that time, the statue was protected with sandbags because they were not going to take it down. So you learn all that from the text, and then in that same text, there are two links to click. One's on Catherine the Great, who commissioned the statue, and one's on the 900-day siege of Leningrad. So if you follow those through, then you get more information. For example, if you follow the Catherine the Great link, you get some very readable text about her arriving in St. Petersburg as a 14-year-old, rather minor German princess, to be married off to Empress Elizabeth's nephew and heir, Peter, and a few biographical details that trace her journey from that young girl to the very powerful woman who became Russia's longest reigning female sovereign. There's a little bit of material on her love of art. When you research the Hermitage, you'll realise, if you don't know already, she played a big role in that. It tells you how fond she was of culture, the friendships that she formed with intellectuals of the day like Voltaire and Diderot. You might remember from one of the episodes in the St. Petersburg series, the story about Diderot where Catherine discovered that as an old man, he was very poor and he was having to sell all his books. And she promptly bought the whole collection and said, I don't want them yet. An old man should not be separated from his books. He is to keep them all and I will have them after he dies. I think you have to warm to a woman who thinks books are so important. You get references to the very active life she liked to lead. Out hunting most days, for example, with her falcons about her whirl of a social life, the glittering balls she liked to put on at the various palaces, her foreign conquests, and her very colourful love life. And all of this illustrated by seven or eight coloured pictures 
Many of them are in fact pictures of the paintings of her, the well-known ones, which if you get to St. Petersburg, you'll probably see in the various art galleries there. So it really is a website from which you can learn lots and where you could lose yourself in St. Petersburg for, all a morning at least. On that same website, there's a really good art section. So just to remind you, www.st-petersburg.com. If you Google that, plus Museums of Art and Culture, which is what they call the section, I'm sure you'll find it. And the first page you come to is a handy roundup of the top museums in the city. Not just the art museums, but also the literary museums, the music and theatre ones, etc. So let's have a quick look at just two of the sections. The first one being the Hermitage, St. Petersburg's massive and world-famous art gallery. There's a little text on the website about it, and then a link through to the Hermitage's own website, which of course you could access by a different route, on which you will find three floor plans on the homepage and a numbered key to all the rooms. So if you're looking for Renaissance art, or art from Tibet, or ancient Egypt, or the Nordic countries, or any of the other many, many, many categories of goodies that they have there, that's a good start. Which floor is it on, and whereabouts? If it's actual paintings you want to see, then on this website you should choose the Explore section, because that allows you to browse their collection. Pause to remember that there are several hundred thousand exhibits there, but this really is very comprehensive. You can click through dozens and dozens of rooms. When you get to them, you can pan right round and have a good look. You can do a bit of a close-up on some of the paintings. You can click the little I button to bring up an information paragraph. Really, there's hours and hours of browsing in there, if art is your thing. I had a brief excursion to perhaps what was one of my favourite bits of the whole hermitage, and that's the Raphael Loggia, which I remember enjoying visiting because it's so beautiful but actually also for the story that went with it, which was that Catherine the Great had been to Rome, she had seen Raphael's loggia in the Vatican, and she came home saying, I want one of those, and so it was duly commissioned and produced. I just like the idea that someone can say, I must have a world-famous artwork just like that one. Click her fingers, and it's done. I think the only problem you'll have on this wonderful website is exactly actually the same problem that you have at the Hermitage itself, you will be overwhelmed by the choice and the amount. But at least on a virtual visit, you have the option of stopping when you're tired and coming back another day. Yes, the Hermitage is a must-visit for anybody who's interested in art and finds themselves in St. Petersburg. But actually, controversial though it might be, I think I would say that I preferred different art gallery, about which I hadn't known anything before I started researching the city, and that's one called the State Russian Museum. And you can get to information on that from this same website, www.stpetersburg.com. Head to the section marked Museums of Art and Culture, and then there's a little bit of information and a link through to their website. On which, to give you just a general idea of what's there, you'll find the following introductory text. Fiercely nationalist Tsar Alexander III became the first Russian ruler to make a significant collection of art by Russian artists. His son, Nicholas II, decided to open a museum in his father's honour and in 1895 bought the Mikhailovsky Palace to house the collection. So that sums up what for me makes this the museum to go to if you can only go to one, although I hope nobody would have that dreadful choice to make. And the reason is because it's full of Russian art, 
400,000 works to be precise, but it covers the complete history of Russian art from the 11th century, those lovely icons, right through to work by contemporary video artists. So yes, the Hermitage has the worldwide collection, but the State Russian Museum is perhaps more the thing if it really is Russian art that you want to learn something about. Again, you can look up artworks, you can look up movements, you can have a look, for example, at the early 19th century paintings, which show you the lifestyle of Russia's peasants, and then show you the lifestyle of the bourgeoisie at the same time, possibly give you an inkling into why the Russian Revolution happened. From later in the 19th century, you can find information about a group of artists known as the Wanderers, who decided to make a stand against what artists had been doing up till then. I think their name comes from the fact that they went a-wandering through Russia to the furthest outreaches where painters hadn't been before, and their paintings therefore give you a picture of Russia at that period in a way that really hadn't been done before then. Interesting to note actually that they were doing that exactly at the time that the Impressionist painters in Paris were also saying, let's try something new. You can get to know then the works of some of Russia's most famous artists. The one whose name kept coming up is Ilya Repin, R-E-P-I-N. And there are several of his paintings there that you can find, including ones of Russian peasants in the fields and a portrait of Leo Tolstoy. And there's also a massive one that covers a whole wall called the Ceremonial Meeting of the State Council at their meeting on the 7th of May in 1901. So, let's think about history for a moment. I found a really good website to give you a very brief introduction to places in St. Petersburg where you can learn some history. And the website is called audlytravel.com, A-U-D-L-E-Y, travel, all written as one word. It actually covers St. Petersburg and Moscow and Ekaterinburg. So you may want to just look at the first bit on St. Petersburg, but it tells you which buildings to visit there if it's Russian history that you're interested in, and it gives a few little snippets of historical information along the way. So, for example, it points out that if you go to the Hermitage, also known as the Winter Palace, you can see Catherine the Great's jewellery collection, you can see Peter the Great's throne. It reminds you to go to the Yusupov Palace, which is the building in which Rasputin was murdered. It tells you a little bit about the exhibition you can visit there. It tells you the story behind the church on the spilled blood. If you're wondering why a church has such a macabre name, it will explain to you it's because it was built exactly on the spot where Tsar Alexander II was murdered. A terrorist threw a bomb at him. And his son, Alexander III, had this church built exactly on the spot where it happened. He actually had the canal diverted to make sure it was exactly in the spot. And as the website points out, inside the church you'll find a memorial to him with a marble canopy over it. You might do as I did and get so interested in what they were saying that you end up reading the bits about Moscow and Ekaterinburg as well, the result of which can only be that you end up wanting to visit those too. So be warned about that. I noticed actually at the bottom of the page on the historical site they had adverts for other tours that they do, one of which is called a Go Slow Visit to St. Petersburg, and one of which is called Visiting St. Petersburg in Winter. So let me quote just a little bit from the latter. If you go in the cold months, you can expect to see, quote, citizens walking the streets muffled in furs, frosted windows revealing displays of traditional Cossack hats nowadays worn only by women, 
and snowfall adding a sprinkling of white to palaces, statues and churches, or sometimes draping itself like thick icing over rooftops. All enticing ideas, no? Anyway, back to the history. And yet again, I wanted to mention the stpetersburg.com website, where there is a section on monuments, and some very readable information to give you all the things you need to know before visiting a particular monument, if you were going to really understand what you were looking at. So, as an example, I looked at the section on a monument which I found perhaps the most moving of all the ones I went to in the city, and that's the Monument to the Heroic Defenders of Leningrad, which was built in the 1970s to commemorate the heroic efforts of the people of Leningrad during the siege in World War II. It tells you that it lasted 900 days. There are photographs taken at the time. There's a grim account of what actually happened in the period when daily rations were two thin slices of poor quality bread per person. And it goes on too to describe some of the events which happened during that time, which now seem almost unbelievable. So there's information about the Dmitry Shostakovich concert on the 9th of August 1942, so right in the middle of the siege. Shostakovich was in Leningrad at the time, and his response was to write his seventh symphony, known today as the Leningrad Symphony, and which was played outdoors in the city as an act of defiance. To quote from this website, As bombs fell nearby, a depleted, weakened, starving orchestra played to a packed concert hall of weakened, starving people. The performance was aired across the city by loudspeakers, some of which were directed towards German lines as an act of cultural resistance to atrocity. There's a second section on a lady called Olga Bergholz, who became the voice of Leningrad during the siege. She worked at the radio station, reading out the daily dreadful news in what the website describes as her calm, reassuring voice, and she read poems which she'd written and poems by other people, in an attempt to keep people hanging on to some measure of hope. So here, for example, quoted on the website, are a few lines of one of her poems. To have survived this blockade's fetters, death daily hovering above, what strength we have needed, neighbour, what hate we have needed, and what love. So much so that moods of doubt have shaken the strongest will. Can I endure it? Can I bear it? You'll bear it. You'll last out. You will. So as you can hear, quite a bit more than just the very basic facts. Moving on to a different aspect, lots of people visit St Petersburg for the ballet. And a website which I found which was useful for finding out about that was called theculturetrip.com on their section about watching ballet in St. Petersburg. Gives you a little bit of introductory history, saying, for example, that St. Petersburg really is the cradle of Russian ballet tradition. It was the city where, in the 1730s, a French choreographer started Russia's first ballet school in an attic room in the Winter Palace. That turned into the first ballet troupe, which was soon state-sponsored, and by the 19th century, Russian ballet was admired as being really one of the very best traditions. So on this website you'll find short descriptions of some of the best-known Russian ballets, ones that you'll know, such as the Nutcracker and Swan Lake, but also telling you that there is, for example, a ballet based on Anna Karenina, the Tolstoy novel. It's also quite good on which venues in St. Petersburg you should think about if you want to see ballet. 
You may already know about the Mariinsky Theatre, but it points out too that the Hermitage Theatre and the Mikhailovsky Theatre both have a lot of ballet on their programmes. It tells you about which times of the year it would be best to go if ballet is what you're interested in and has a useful little section called How to Get Tickets. And then staying with culture, I found some really useful information on the White Nights Festival on a website called Travel Begins at 40. Again, that's their section on the White Nights Festival in St. Petersburg. You may know that from late May until early July in St. Petersburg, the nights are very, very long. In fact, it doesn't really get fully dark at all. And that during that period, the city runs its very famous festival. To quote from the website, Travel Begins at 40, During the period of the White Nights Festival, from June to July in St. Petersburg, the sun never sets and the city never sleeps. Russia's cultural capital brims with life when its inhabitants enjoy the mesmerising twilight of the midnight sun with classical music, opera, ballet and theatre performances, as well as dance parties, street concerts, fireworks and the spectacular Scarlet Sales event marking the peak of the festival. So this website lists places you might want to look at to see what performances are on, the Hermitage, the Bolshoi Theatre, the Mariinsky Theatre, etc. And it gives you some interesting background and history, explaining, for example, that the event, the Scarlet Sails, which is one of the big set pieces of the whole festival, has its origins in a children's story, and explains, too, what its meaning is. It's a celebration for high school graduates every year, And the idea is that the symbolic sailing away from the end of school to a new life should be marked. And so there are concerts and the whole thing finishes with a spectacular fireworks display over the River Neva, complete with, and I quote, a scarlet draped sailing ship. And briefly for the last section, I did think I have to mention food. I have to say when we were in St. Petersburg, we did find food a bit baffling mainly because we don't speak any Russian. I really don't want to be one of those English people who bleats about how enough of the rest of the world doesn't speak English. I'm a linguist. I really think we should learn some of their languages. But I suppose you have to accept you can't learn them all. Anyway, food in St. Petersburg. I found on YouTube a film called Soviet Russian Food Tour with Mark Veens, W-I-E-N-S, which, if you have 28 minutes to spare, is quite informative. So he's an American blogger who went to St. Petersburg, befriended an English-speaking Russian guide called, of course, Sergei, and the two of them went on a tour of Soviet-style restaurants in the city, which does make for some very informative viewing. They started off at somewhere called the Singer Cafe, Singer as in sewing machines. The Singer Company was very prevalent in St. Petersburg at the beginning of the 20th century. Their building is still there. It's a department store, I think, on the ground floor. And on the first floor, there is the cafe, which apart from being a lovely art deco building and interior and serving a wonderful array of food, is also popular because it's got big bay windows overlooking the Kazan Cathedral. So it's a very St. Petersburg and Russian experience to go there, buy something Russian to eat, get a window seat and have a look at this lovely cathedral building. On that section of the video, they explain what some of the very common foods that you'll see on menus actually are. Varaniki, for example, potato dumplings. Pelmeni, potato dumplings, but with meat inside. 
useful to know. They visit another very Soviet-style cafe called the Kvartika, at which we're introduced to Russian winter salad, versions of which you will find all over the city. This particular one was a mix of potato, egg, peas, sausage and beetroot, all chopped up small in a mayonnaise sauce. So once you've seen that, at least you'll know what winter salad is. They had some of that. They moved on to borscht, which is the beetroot soup, with, as the presenter said, a maximum of sour cream, and in which you might find pieces of meat or pieces of cabbage. They had stroganoff as well, shown on camera and described as being a mix of mushrooms, dill and buckwheat. Actually, that did bring back memories. For me, the taste of St Petersburg was dill. They did seem to put it in practically everything. They also ordered a Kiev cutlet, which you might know about. Chicken Kiev is on menus in other countries, isn't it? A battered chicken piece. And they drank something I don't remember coming across called chinchka, which was described as a very sweet, very alcoholic drink served in worryingly small glasses, as if only the very smallest quantity might do you some damage. If you want to know more about the sweet side of things, or you want to watch a shorter video, then another one I found on YouTube was called Discovering Epic Russian Treats in St. Petersburg. I think it was seven or eight minutes long, and it starts quite similarly to the previous one, with a presenter on tour going, for example, to get some kachapuri for breakfast. That turns out to be a big round piece of cooked dough, bread really, filled with cheese. Looked very appetising. But then what I liked about this video was the middle bit and the end bit were based around the fact that this presenter actually has Russian relatives, Russian grandparents in fact, and they were both brought on camera to inform us. So first of all we see Babushka, Granny, cooking something called Sirniki. Do apologise to anyone who speaks Russian if that's not quite right. But they're cottage cheese fritters and it's a really lovely piece of film. You get Granny in her kitchen. She doesn't seem to speak any English at all, but she does go carefully through the recipe, showing you everything, describing it in Russian, and there are English subtitles, really useful ones with the quantities and everything, so you could actually watch this and then go and make them. And you watch her making the dough and rolling it into little rounds and frying them, and then serving them up, spread with sour cream and blackcurrant jam. A Russian cream tea, if you will. And then the final section of this film is the presenter again, but this time out and about. He and Grandad, which I think might be Dedushku in Russian, set off to a cafe to enjoy some Russian pastries. So we see a classic Russian berry tart and a slice made of ground almonds and lots of cream. All very enticing. OK, so just to finish off then, three or four reading ideas books I enjoyed, which definitely gave me a flavour of St. Petersburg. A biography of the poet Pushkin. He's everywhere in St. Petersburg. You can visit his house, which is now a museum. You can go to the Pushkin Cafe, where you see a life-size model of him in the window to greet you as you go in. And if you want to read something he wrote, I would suggest a long poem called The Bronze Horseman, which is very St. Petersburg in atmosphere. So I'll read just a few lines in which he's describing... A winter evening, cold icy streets outside and a glittering ball in a palace somewhere inside. I love thy chaste, inclement weather with its bracing and moveless air, the lusty bite and pinch of frost, the sledges racing on Neva's banks, the bloom of bright young cheeks, 
the ballroom's noise and glitter, and, at a bachelor's get-together, the hiss and sparkle of iced champagne and punch bowls topped with bluish flame. You could go for Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, set in St. Petersburg, in the 19th century, and taking you through the city streets at that time, mainly in the company of the less well-off. I think the history book that I most enjoyed reading was one called Four Sisters by Helen Rappaport. The story of the last Romanovs, so the four daughters of Nicholas and Alexandra, their childhood in the palaces of St. Petersburg, and the terrible story of their fate during the Russian Revolution, when all four of them, and their brother Alexei and their parents, were murdered by the revolutionary forces. And if it's fiction you'd like to read, then I would definitely recommend two novels by Ellen Dunmore, both set in St. Petersburg. The first one is called The Siege, a novel about a family during that time, and the second one is called Betrayal, which follows two of the characters a decade or so later, trying to live their lives in Soviet Leningrad, with all the difficulties that that entailed. The plots are grim in many ways, but the writing is beautiful, absolutely lyrical, lots of lovely descriptions of the city. Here, for example, are a couple of lines from The Siege, describing how magical it feels to be out in the city on a summer evening, when the white nights have arrived and the long, dark, freezing Russian winter seems so far away. Quote, Now it's June, a night is brief as the brush of a wing, only an hour of yellow stars in a sky that never darkens beyond deep, tender blue. No one sleeps. Crowds surge out of cafes and wander the streets, not caring where they go, as long as they can lift their faces and drink the light. It's been dark for so many months. So then, that's the end of our virtual tour to St. Petersburg. I hope I've left you with some ideas for things that you could watch or read or look through to bring you a flavour of the city. A quick reminder then that next week we'll be back to a City Breaks idea episode, so if you do have an idea, please do send it along onto the blog at www.citybreakspodcast.co.uk. Thank you very much. I feel it's only fitting to end today's episode with a bit of a Russian flavour, so I'd like to thank you very much for listening. Spasibo, and wish you goodbye until next week. Dosvidanya.